The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word to continue the study of Daniel, the outline of human history, and to once again be reminded that despite the chaos that swirls around us, either in terms of personal problems, personal adversity, or whether it has to do with the national problems, national crisis, war on terrorism, continued threats, whatever the problems may be, we know that you are in control and that Jesus Christ controls history. Father, now as we study these things, we pray that we might be uh, challenged again by your word, by the accuracy of your word, and help us to see how these things uh, fit together and relate to current situations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in Daniel 9, finishing up Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which is one of the most significant and important prophecies in the Old Testament. Its detail is, I think, unsurpassed by any other prophecy, and it's a tremendous testimony to the accuracy of God's Word and to the fact that the Word of God is supernaturally revealed. You can't come up with a prophecy like this, and the detail and the specificity of this prophecy uh, simply by reading the daily horoscope in the Norwich Bulletin or uh, uh, calling up uh, Sister Cleo or whoever on the uh, on the hotline on the whatever number nine hundred number on television or whatever it is. This this testifies to the fact that man cannot invent something like this, and it's even impossible for man to for someone writing in the first century. B.C. to have generated this kind of specificity because in the first to second century B.C., remember, the liberals are the one, liberal theology comes along and says that, oh, Daniel really isn't prophecy because they see at the core of liberalism is an anti-supernatural assumption. That is that God really doesn't interact with human history and God does not speak in human history and therefore uh, there's no, there's not really anything such as predictive prophecy. Therefore, their claim is that Daniel wasn't written, as we believe, about 535 to 540 B.C., but that Daniel was written sometime between uh, 100 to 200 B.C., and it's really history, not prophecy. But if you were writing from 100 to 200 B.C., you would not be aware of the different calendar systems. You would not be able to construct a, uh, a prophecy of this caliber to the very day because you would not have access to the information necessary. So, uh, once again, this just is a testimony to the fact that this is a supernatural revelation. Now, just a little quick review to go through the details of Daniel's 70th week. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we read 70 weeks, and we saw that that was the first interpretive problem, trying to decide what the weeks are. And 
in the Hebrew, it's not weeks, it's uh, 70 periods of seven. And we saw that this is 70, uh, really 70 periods of seven years each, or a 490-year period, has been decreed for your people and your holy city, that is, the Jews and Jerusalem. Six purposes are listed to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and that would be the sin of Israel on their rejection of God, to make atonement for iniquity, that is, to apply the atonement to their sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that is, the millennial kingdom, to seal up vision and prophecy, that is, to bring these uh, prophecies related to Israel to a conclusion, and to anoint the most holy place, which is the millennial temple. Now, remember, there are four temples in history. The first two temples, the first temple was Solomon's temple. second temple is Zerubbabel's temple, which was the temple they rebuilt after their return from Babylon. The third temple is the tribulation temple. It is an apostate temple. It is not a a divinely authorized temple, but it is one that has to be built during the tribulation period. And then the fourth temple is the uh, millennial temple. Verse 25 says, you, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat. Actually, that's plaza and trenches for the walls, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the people, notice it's the people of the prince who is to come. I made that point last time. The prince who is to come is a reference to the Antichrist. The people, it is his people who destroy the city and the sanctuary. Since the city and the sanctuary were destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans under Titus, we know that the prince who is to come has his ethnic origin in the peoples that made up the old Roman Empire. Therefore, the Antichrist is not going to be an Arab. He's not going to be Islamic, probably. He's not going to be not all Arabs, I mean, not all uh, Muslims or Arabs, but he's not going to come out of that background. He's not going to be Asian. He's not going to be African. He will be Western European. So the people of the prince who is to come are, are the Romans who destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 A.D., and its end will come with a flood even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. That means that Jerusalem is always going to be a focal point of warfare. And he, that is the Antichrist, we'll see that tonight when we finish up in verse 27, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, we got to a point last time where we were reviewing the history of the violence in Jerusalem, and asking the question, raising the question that is answered in this passage, is there a future for Israel, and what does the Scripture say about a return of Jews to the land, even though they are not yet uh, regenerate, even though they aren't yet saved, even though they haven't uh, accepted Christ as their Savior. But before we get there, let's continue our review. We saw that the starting point here in this calculation had to do with the second decree of Artaxerxes. I outlined four options from the ancient ancient world, and the one that is most likely to be the correct one is the second decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, which was given in 444 B.C. And then we built a chart. From March, we know the date of that decree, which is given in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 3, that Artaxerxes authorized Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the fortifications of the city and to finish its reconstruction. That occurred on March the 5th, 444 B.C. There's two time periods given in verse 25, a seven-week period, which would be approximately 49 years, and a 62-week period. You add those together, you come up with 69 weeks. They are for Israel. We went through the calculations and saw that that covered a period from roughly 444 B.C. to 395 
B.C., and that was the time period when the city was being rebuilt. We saw that the calendar they used was a 360-day year calendar. This is substantiated by various passages in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, as well as extra-biblical information that many ancient cultures followed a 360-day calendar system. Uh, Various passages in Scripture use uh, the chronologies to describe the tribulation period. Daniel 9.27 uses a phrase, a half a week. Uh, Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, Revelation 12.14 use the phrase time, times, and a half a time. Furthermore, Revelation 12.6 refers to the same period of time as 1,260 days. Furthermore, in Revelation 11.2, it's defined as 42 months. So 42 months equals 1,260 days, and that equals time, times, and a half a time. Then you work out all the calculations, you end up with a 360-day year. That means that if you take 69 times 7 times 360 days, you come up with 173,880 days. You add that to March 5th, 444 B.C., and you end up with March 30th, A.D. 33. Then to verify that, we used a modern 365-day year. We went from 444 B.C. to 33, and that's 476 years, subtracting the year zero because there is no year zero when you go from B.C. to A.D., then we took that 476 years, multiplied it by uh, 365.2421989 days, and you end up with 173,855 days. Then you add in the distinction or the difference between March 5th and March 30th, and which is 25 days, and you come up with 173,880 days. So this is a precise calculation, and it tells us that on... March the 30th, A.D. 33, Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem in the, what is called the triumphal entry covered in Luke 19, 28 to 40. It is after that, the text says, it is after that that the Messiah is cut off. Verse 26 says that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So after you work out all the calculations, after that, there's the cross, then the city's destroyed, there's a gap of time, at least 2,000 years, and then you have the last week, or Daniel's 70th week. We have not entered that yet. That begins, as we'll see in verse 27, with the signing of a peace treaty, the signing of, a, of some sort of a covenant or treaty between the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, and Israel. That's what starts the clock going again. So it's not the rapture that begins the tribulation. It is the signing of this peace treaty. The rapture ends the church age, but it's the signing of this peace treaty that begins the tribulation. And then Messiah returns at the end of that seven-week period. But both the first 69-week period and the final 70th-week period have to do with the nation Israel. That means, since we are now living in the church age and we have passages like uh, Galatians 3, 26 to 28, that tell us that uh, there is no Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or slave. We are all one in Christ. We've all been baptized into the body of Christ. That being a member of ethnic Israel is not a spiritual issue in the church age. For God to re- return the emphasis to Israel as a nation in the tribulation, the church must be taken out of the way. So Daniel's prophecy here is one of the strongest arguments in the Scripture that the church must be removed before the tribulation because the tribulation, which is also called in Jeremiah the time of Jacob's wrath, it is a time for God to pour out his wrath on Israel. He will bring them to the greatest degree of and maximum divine discipline as a nation, and only in the heat of that disciplinary furnace will many finally turn and to Jesus Christ and accept him as their Messiah, and that will not occur until the end of the tribulation period. Although many will be saved throughout the tribulation period, the vast majority 
uh, do not turn and accept him nationally until the end of the tribulation period. So we can, we're looking at verse 26 last time. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's the crucifixion. His cutting off and have nothing means that he will not have his kingdom at that time. That was, he had, when he died on the cross, he had nothing. He did not begin his kingdom. His kingdom was not inaugurated at the first advent. His kingdom is postponed until the second coming. And then the verse goes on to read, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. That's the uh, overwhelming military destruction that uh, is described by the word flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, here's a history of the desolations in Jerusalem. 70 A.D., Titus and the Romans destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. Then again, in 135 A.D., Emperor Hadrian conquered Jerusalem because there was another revolt there, and he uh, uh, renamed the city Aeoli Capitolina. He declared it to be a Gentile city, and he removed all the Jews from the city, and no Jews were allowed to live in Jerusalem. Then in 614 A.D., the Sassanid Empire conquered uh, part of this area that was uh, controlled by the uh, Seljuk Turks, uh, the Sassanid Empire is the heir to the Parthian Empire, which was the heir to the Persian Empire. They invaded from the east and gained control of Israel and Jerusalem for a short time until the Arabs came in in 637 A.D. and conquered the Sassanids and gained control of Palestine and Jerusalem at that time. Then in 1517 A.D., the Ottoman Turks... Uh, took it over, took the area over again, and it became part of the Ottoman Empire. And it remained a part of the Ottoman Empire until the end of World War I. So in 1917, at the end of World War I, when the British troops marched into Jerusalem, uh, Britain came under the martial rule of General Allenby, who was a believer. Then in 1948, when Israel declared their independence, five Arab nations invaded and were defeated by Israel. Then again in 1967, uh, at the, uh, uh, in the 67 war, the Jews, the Israelis took control of the city and then returned, uh, the Temple Mount to the, uh, Arabs. And point number nine, there are continuing fights over who controls the city ever since. So the prophecy has come true that until Jesus Christ returns, there will be, uh, there will be, uh, wars and desolations related to Jerusalem. It is a cup of bitterness, according to Zechariah. Now, there are some other passages that we have to look at. I started last time going through several points. We just covered the first four to see if the Bible teaches a return of Jews to the land before the tribulation. This is crucial because, you see, there are some people that think that since since no prophecy has to be fulfilled for the rapture to occur, that that means no prophecy is fulfilled in the church age. And those are two completely different statements. Let me run that by you again. No prophecy has to be fulfilled in order for the rapture to occur. The rapture is the next event in the calendar. But what follows the rapture is the tribulation generally. And that means that some prophecy might be fulfilled before the rapture, but it is not related to the rapture itself or to the present church age, but is related to what must take place after the rapture in the tribulation. So while no prophecy must be fulfilled in order for the rapture to occur, uh, it's still possible for prophecy to be fulfilled during this age that relates to events in Israel that transpire after, after the rapture. And I started off last time asking, using as an illustration, the somewhat facetious question, trivia question, who was the first person crowned king over Israel? And uh, most people want to jump to it and say that was Saul. And yet, because we, we have this blind spot, we want to think in terms of 
divinely authorized events and related to believers. But we forget that in Judges chapter 9 that, that the men of Shechem crowned uh, Abimelech king over, over Israel. Now, that doesn't mean he actually ruled over all of Israel, that everybody recognized his kingship, and it doesn't mean God anointed him king. But it does clearly state that there were a group of men who politically uh, organized a uh, group behind him and, or, and uh, anointed him as king. Now, in the same way, we tend to think only of the return of Jews as regenerate Jews at the end of the tribulation, and we fail to recognize that there are clear statements in Scripture that God is going to bring about a return of unregenerate Jews to the land that is distinct from that return, that international return of regenerate Jews at the end of the tribulation. So you have two returns. You have the first return, which is a partial return of unsaved Jews, and then there is a second return that takes place at the end of the tribulation, and this will be comprised of saved Jews. At the beginning, you have an unregenerate nation, unsaved. At the end, there will be a regenerate nation. The unsaved Jews are necessary because there must be an apostate temple built to fulfill the prophecy in Daniel, once you have saved regenerate Jews at the end of the tribulation, then you will have an authorized millennial temple built for the worship of God and His Messiah. So the first point was that to recognize that there's a blind spot and not to think only of regenerate people a regenerate Israel in, in, uh, when we talk about Israel's return to the land. The second point was to answer the question, why would God restore unbelieving Israel to the land? What, what is, would be a purpose for God to restore unbelieving Israel to the land? And that was to accomplish his purposes. In the same way that God had a partial return of Jews to the land in 535 B.C., in order to, for there to be a nation in the land that for the Messiah to come to in order to fulfill the prophecies related to his, his first advent, his rejection and crucifixion, God is going to bring a partial return of unregenerate Jews to the land at the end of the church age in order to set the stage for the events of the tribulation so that there will be the judgment on the nation uh, and that takes place to fulfill all the prophecies related to the tribulation, the time of, of uh, Jacob's wrath. Third point, God restored a portion of the people for the purpose of having a national presence in the land for the arrival of Messiah at the first coming, and in the same way he will restore a portion of the people uh, to have a national presence in the land for the arrival of Messiah at the second coming. Fourth point was to look at some scriptures. We started with Ezekiel 37 last time, and then we moved on to look at some other passages in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 is a crucial passage to understand this. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. Now watch that word wrath. Wrath is a technical term for uh, divine judgment. It is a technical term for the tribulation. With wrath poured out, it's the time of Jacob's wrath, remember, in Jeremiah. Uh, With wrath poured out, I shall be king over you, and I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. So it is a regathering in the midst of judgment. Verse 35, And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I shall make you pass under the rod. That is an idiom for judgment, an evaluation. And I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant. That is the new covenant that is brought about at the end of the tribulation. And I shall purge from you the rebels... That indicates that the rebels indicates that there are unregenerate, unsaved Jews. This is a regathering of unsaved people for God to purge out the rebels. 
and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. That is talking about that final entry into the millennial Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Then another passage in Ezekiel 22:17 parallels this. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. That means that it's, a, it's an analogy with metal. And this is the impurities that you find when you, uh, when you um, are in the process of purifying and smelting, refining the metals. The house of Israel has become dross. That is all of the impurities. So the picture here is of Israel as impure, as unsaved, as unregenerate. The house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. In other words, he's looking for the pure silver, not the bronze, the tin, the iron, or the lead. That's that's extraneous. Verse 19, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, therefore, behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it, so I shall gather you in my anger and in my wrath. Notice they are gathered in his anger and in his wrath. This is not a picture of saved Jews. God is not treating them, in the saved, in anger and wrath. This is directed towards an unregenerate nation. And I shall lay you there and melt you. So it's a picture that they're going to be brought back to the land. And then this tremendous heat of the tribulation is going to be applied to the nation. So there has to be a return of unregenerate Jews to the land and have a nation there in order for the tribulation to take place. Uh, Verse 21, And I shall gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace... So you will be melted in the midst of it, and you will know, and this is really a result use of the of the uh, conjunction here, the chi, um, excuse me, the evolved consecutive here, it's a result. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Then we skip over to Ezekiel 36, 22, where we read, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. So that's a picture of all the Jews in the diaspora. We are in the midst of the diaspora. That's the Greek word that describes the scattering, the dispersion. That's our English cognate the dispersion of Jews throughout all the Gentile nations, which was, uh, which began actually in 722 B.C. If you noticed uh, Sunday morning when John Niemöller was here and he went, was going through uh, John chapter 7, I think it was down about verse 35, the Pharisees were uh, involved in an uh, argument with Jesus and they said, where will you... Where will you go from here? Will you go into the diaspora? Will you go into the dispersion? Will you go into uh, the, the, the dispersion among the Gentiles? So that was a, a passage that recognized that at the time of the first coming, when you still had a presence of Israel in the land, a national identity of Jews in the land, uh, the majority of Jews were still outside the land in the diaspora. So the per, in the diaspora, God says, you have not honored me. You have failed in your witness. You have failed to be a testimony to my grace. And so I will bring judgment, and I must uh, vindicate my holy name since you have uh, profaned it among the nations. Verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So it's a clear statement that as unregenerate Israel, they will be taken from the nations and restored to their own land. Then we come to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 is a strong passage. God says, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. So it's looking at this shameful nation that should have shame, but they, they don't have shame. They don't recognize their sin. They're told to gather themselves. Notice the timing of this gathering as at the beginning of verse 2. 
before the decree takes effect. Now, the decree here is the end result, the salvation of Israel at the end of the tribulation. It is before the decree takes takes effect that they are regathered. The day passes like the chaff before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Now, the burning anger of the Lord is a reference to the tribulation. So they are to gather before the burning anger of the Lord and before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. So this is a clear reference to the fact that God is going to begin to restore Jews to the land to establish a Jewish presence in Israel before the tribulation takes place. And that is exactly the scenario we see in Daniel chapter 9. The point that we will see clearly is that if, in verse 27, if the Antichrist is to confirm, and literally means to establish a strong, it's a, uh, the, the literal translation be to establish a strong covenant. He is going to, is going to be enforced with, with strong provisions. He shall make this covenant with it, with the many for one week. Now the term many refers to the majority in Israel. Not all the Jews are going to be in favor of it, but the majority will. He's going to impose this treaty. Now in order for the Antichrist, who is the world ruler, the, the uh, king of the West, in order for him to have a sign a peace treaty with Israel, there has to be a national entity of Israel in the land with a national government and head of government and everything that goes with that in order for them to be able to enter into a, a, a treaty agreement with the Antichrist. So that means that at the beginning of the tribulation, there has to be a nation of Jews in the land established with their own Government. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, a hundred years ago, when there was no nation Israel, dispensational writers often thought that there must be sixty or seventy years between. Well, they, what they said was, if the rapture were to have occurred in their generation, they thought that sixty or seventy years would have to transpire between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation to give time for Israel to be regathered, establish a government, and for these things to take place. Now that there is a nation in the land, it seems that uh, all of those things don't have to transpire, perhaps not as much time between the uh, rapture and the beginning of the church age. Now the passages we just went through, that was part of point four. These are passages that indicate that there will be an initial uh, gathering of unsaved Jews into the land for the purposes of... Uh, providing a nation there to fulfill the prophecies related to the tribulation. Now, point five. There's some other passages that relate to Israel's regathering as saved at the end of the tribulation. We, I won't read all of these or go through them. I'm just going to give you the references. There's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 27, 12 through 13. Isaiah 43, 5 through 7. Jeremiah 16, 14 through 15. Jeremiah 31, 7 through 10. Ezekiel 11, 14 to 18. Amos 9, 14 to 15. Zechariah 10, 8 to 12. And Matthew 24, 31. Now let me go through those again quickly. Deuteronomy 4, 29 to 31. Deuteronomy 31 through 10, Isaiah 27, 12 to 13, 43, 5 to 7, Jeremiah 16, 14 to 15, Jeremiah 31, 7 to 10, Ezekiel 11, 14 to 18, Amos 9, 14 to 15, Zechariah 10, 8 through 12, and Matthew 24, 31. I want you to notice that those come from six or seven different books in the Old Testament. It's not just one book. It's scattered throughout the Old Testament. There are these promises, and there are many others I could turn to, that God will restore Israel as a regenerate people. This tells us that God has a future plan for Israel. That God has a plan for Israel in the future. God has not set Israel aside. This is what Paul states in Romans chapter 11. God has not permanently set, the, set Israel aside. That he does have a future for them and a plan for them as a saved people. And it is in, under those conditions that he will fulfill all of his Old Testament uh, prophecies. 
Now, point number six relates to Israel's current regathering. And here we're going to spend some time looking at contemporary events and contemporary history because so few people understand this, especially in light of all of the uh, uh, conflict that's going on now. If you like, if you're a news junkie like I am and you like to sit up at night and watch Alan Keyes or you like to watch Crossfire or all of the other talk shows, you have probably have already discovered that there are some major discrepancies. And about three weeks ago, I had uh, already put much of most of this together, and I had been teaching it at a couple of conferences uh, in Cincinnati and in Houston earlier this year, back in uh, March and in January. And I was watching Alan Keyes one night on MSNBC, and he had a, rep- a Palestinian representative on, and I just loved Alan Keyes. He was just going point by point through this material. And he was just right on the money, and the the more evidence he gave for what actually has occurred in the 20th century in the Middle East, the more this Palestinian was going nuts. I mean, all they can do is scream and yell that all your all that is nothing more than Jewish propaganda. You're just paying attention to Jewish lies, Jewish propaganda. And the problem is that the Palestinians and the Arabs don't know the truth. They've never heard the truth. They, they, it's not that they're being intentionally or some of their spokesmen are necessarily being intentionally misleading. I don't think they've ever even seen the truth. They've been lied to by their press and by their leaders for so many years that they are are completely deceived by the party line. So uh, my opinion is you can't trust any of them because they wouldn't know the truth if it hit them in the face. Now, the modern history goes like this. 1798, Napoleon invaded the Middle East. When Napoleon invaded the Middle East, went down to Egypt and came up through Israel, that uh, began um, an entire... Uh, array of interest in Europe as to what the future of Israel would be. Does God have a future plan for Israel? In fact, Napoleon made the statement when he was in Palestine that they ought to establish a homeland for the Jews. That got all kinds of people talking, and that was in 1798. That's one of the facts. See, up until that point, there really hadn't been much focus on the Jews for uh 1,600, 1,700 years. Nobody had thought much about the Jews or their future. But all of a sudden, especially theologians began to think in terms of a future for Israel, and that had an impact on biblical prophecy. Remember, at that time, dispensationalism didn't even exist. Now, there were people who held to different elements of dispensationalism, the pre-trib rapture and other doctrines. There's evidence of that in church history. But it's only in the context of Napoleon's invasion of the Middle East that many people, popular culture, starts to focus on this issue. And I think that modern, tribu- modern dispensational theology is built on a three-legged stool. And if you don't have that third leg, all three legs there, the stool's not going to stand up. And the three legs are literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. That was recovered at the beginning of the tribulation. The, the, uh, the second leg is a futuristic view of prophecy. Really, there's four legs on the stool. The the futuristic view of prophecy. The second is a view of a literal millennium. And then the the fourth is that uh, there's a future for Israel. Once you have these four elements together, literal interpretation, a future thousand-year literal millennium, a... Uh, futuristic view of prophecy that this hasn't been fulfilled yet, that revelation has to be fulfilled in the future. And then fourth, uh, a return of Israel to the land. Once you're thinking within those boundaries, then dispensational theology becomes very obvious. But if you're not going to Scripture with those assumptions already, then, then you're going to miss out on the whole thing. Well, in 1814, just 16... Years after Napoleon's invasion of the Middle East, the Presbyterian pastor John MacDonald begins to teach that there will be a return to Israel and the land, and this begins to have a major influence on people. Uh, a couple of generations go by between the, before the next significant event, and in, in between you have the rise of uh, uh, Darby, dispens- development of dispensational theology, a uh, number of other important events, but in 1878, William Blackstone publishes a book 
called Jesus is Coming. And with the publication of that book, he predicted and encouraged the return of the Jews to the land, and that got the attention of a lot of evangelicals in both England and America and got them interested in backing a return of Jews to the land. Between 1881 and 1900, there is what is called the first aliyah. The aliyah means ascent, and there in the history of Israel, they, uh, modern Israel, they define about eight different aliyahs, and each one is a, an ascent or return of Jews to the land. And the first aliyah, between 1881 and 1900, 30,000 Russian Jews fled the persecution in Russia for Palestine. If you've seen the movie uh, Fiddler on the Roof, that describes uh, the events with some Jews in a small village in Russia. Uh, during one of the Russian persecutions, and it was that very that kind of event that uh, uh, encouraged many Jews to return to Palestine. In 1896, Theodor Herzl uh, realized after the Dreyfus trial that there was no future in Europe for Jews, and he began uh, Zionism. And the first Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland, and it adopted Zionism, that is, the return of uh uh, Jews to a national homeland in Israel as a program. Their goal was to create for the Jewish people a home in Palestine, quote, by public law. Okay, it was to be legal. They weren't going to go down there and just steal land from the Arabs. What they did was, and really starting with, with almost a generation before this, you had Jews returning to Israel and buying land. Now, now, if, if, uh, if you, if you were to take the time, and I didn't want to take the time to be distracted with it tonight, but I was uh, reading some excerpts from Mark Twain's tour of the Middle East, and he just describes Israel. He goes from one major town to the to the other in, in in Israel in the 1880s, and he describes how nobody's living there. There's just a few Bedouins. There's nothing there but ruins. The ground is so dry; it's just a desert. There's no productivity. There's no agriculture. There's no irrigation. There, there's nothing there. I mean, it is just a, a barren wasteland in the in the late 19th century. And so Jews began to go back, and they purchased this land that nobody was using for anything. Remember, they're not stealing it from a Palestinian nation or a Palestinian people. They're purchasing it from uh, the government of the Ottoman Empire. It is their land legally and and uh, correctly and bought under all of the uh, proper legal qualifications, and what they did was they began to turn it into a productive area. They began to irrigate. They began to plant. They began to do something with it that the Arabs had not done with the land in 2,000 years. And now what's happened is the Arabs who've never in that area have never produced anything, have never produced a culture, never produced any any art, any music, never produced any any industry, never produced uh, any agriculture in that area. All of a sudden, the Jews have come back and they've turned this into a tremendously productive area, and they're just jealous and they want to destroy it. So uh, that began with the first Zionist Congress in, in Basel, Switzerland, 1897. In 1916, in the middle of World War I, there was a signing of a treaty between France and England called the Sykes-Picot Treaty. And in that treaty, they divided up the spheres of influence that France would, would uh, after the war, take control of Syria and Lebanon, and the British would be in charge of the area of Palestine. Then in 1917, as the war was just about over, a Christian Brit by the name of Balfour had an addendum to the Sykes-Picot Treaty that would uh, allow them to make uh, Palestine a homeland and declare it a homeland for the Jews. And then in 1924 to 29, there is a tremendous reaction among the Arabs. Uh, Transjordan, which is now Jordan, was set aside as a um, the area across the Jordan was set aside, and there would be no Jewish settlement. Uh, there, all of this uh, shows the return of the to the for the modern nation. Now, I want to go through about nine points, or about twelve points, on modern history or the history of modern Israel. Point number one: Before World War One, there was no Saudi Arabia, there was no Jordan, 
There was no Transjordan, no Syria, no Iraq. These were all creations after World War I. So it's 2002, 100 years ago, none of these nations existed. Basically, they were created by the British Foreign Office after World War I. The Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks, ruled the area, and Syria-Palestine was nothing more than an administrative region at best. Only Bedouins, nomads, and a few Jews lived in what is now Israel. In 1858, the Pittsburgh Dispatch recorded that there were 40,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem, 30,000 were Jews, the remaining 10,000 were mostly various types of Christians, and very few Muslims. The Quran never once mentions Jerusalem, whereas the Bible mentions Jerusalem over 700 times in the Old Testament. So before World War I, there's no, none of these nations exist. Uh, Israel-Palestine is just a barren wasteland, and Jews are returning, buying the land. Now, here's a map in 1914 on the eve of the war, and you see this area in brown is the Ottoman Empire. It comes from... Uh, the area up here, which was ancient Thrace and Macedonia, part of Greece, all the way down through uh, modern Turkey, uh, Mesopotamia. See, this is the area of modern Iraq. This area over here called per- labeled Persia is modern Iran. This area where you see Mesopotamia, that's mostly modern Iraq, Syria, uh, Palestine. All of the these weren't nations. These were just general regions. And the Ottoman Empire went all the way down the East coast of the Red Sea, that area is called the Hejaz. Remember that. That will become important in a minute. That's called the Hejaz. And in the middle of uh, what is now Saudi Arabia, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, you just had various uh, tribes running around the desert battling each other as they had for uh, several, for many hundreds of years. So this is a picture at the beginning of World War, World War I. Then, point number two, at the end of World War I, an evangelical Christian Brit by the name of Balfour got a homeland for the Jews established in the Middle East as an addendum to the Sykes-Picot Treaty. It included all of what is now Israel and Jordan. This was in 1917. It's called the Balfour Declaration, and it was a modification of the earlier sykes Pico Treaty, which divided up spheres of influence between France and Britain. Then, in point number three, in 1919, two years later, the League of Nations, which was the earlier form of the UN, the, the early attempt at a United Nations that was put together after World War I, the League of Nations mandated that Britain would govern Egypt, Arabia, and Palestine, that was the area that is now called Israel and Jordan and Iraq. Now, that's called the British Mandate. That's how you'll see it referred to. That's called the British Mandate. The League also mandated the French to rule Syria and Iraq. Then later, after this, in the early 20s, the Brits declared that the Jews would on, could only settle west of the Jordan. They couldn't settle east of the Jordan. They began to divide things up. Just as a side note, the Arabs who lived in this area refused to be called Palestinians in the early, in 1900 because they thought the term was a synonym for Jews. So, so this concept of Palestinian is a recent creation. Now in 1919, Palestine still referred generally to this, this whole area. Point number four. Uh, here's a map of the British mandate. You see that it includes all of modern Jordan as well as uh, modern Israel, but the Brits divided it up. Now, point number four, to pay off their debts to the Arabs who helped them defeat the Turks in World War One, and if you want to know about that, go watch Lawrence of Arabia. That's what that's all about. Uh, in fact, Lawrence promised Faisal of the Arabs that uh, he would be made uh, the uh, he would be given Saudi Arabia at the end of the war. So to help pay off their debts to the Arabs who helped them defeat the Turks, uh, the British established Transjordan, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Now, after the war, the Brits were going to honor Lawrence's promise to Faisal and give him Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, unfortunately, there was a, a, a Saudi prince by the name of Ibn Saud who conquered the Hejaz before British could, the Brits could pay off Faisal. And so what they had to do was work a deal with Ibn Saud, and they gave him all of Saudi Arabia. That's how, how the Arabia, Arabian Peninsula came to be called Saudi Arabia. Now what are they going to do with Faisal? So they created another country, and they called it Iraq, and they gave that to Faisal. And then he had a brother, Abdullah, and had to do something to pay off Abdullah, so they gave him the Transjordan. And Abdullah's son was King Hussein of Jordan, and his grandson, Abdullah, is now the King of Jordan. Now, uh, Faisal ran Iraq until the, in, the Soviets engineered a coup against him in, or against his son in 1958. One of the Soviet agents was named Yevgeny Primakov, who was also the contact for two individuals, George Habash and Yasser Arafat, who at that time in 1948 were going around Israel blowing up school buses. Primakov, the Soviet, also developed a contact in a young Iraqi military officer named Saddam Hussein and was instrumental in backing Hussein's power grab in 1979. So that's how the Soviets played a role in engineering current development. This is a picture of the post-World War I Middle East. You have Syria and Lebanon up here in this blue stripe area, the Transjordan here, Iraq over here, and then all of Saudi Arabia down to the south. 1946, after World War II, the Brits officially gave the territory of Transjordan to, to, uh, uh, to the Hashemites as their own kingdom, granted them independence. And in 1947, the UN again restricted the amount of land that would be given uh, to Israel in UN Resolution 81. That left the Jews with less than, with about 18% of the original land that was to be theirs under the Balfour Declaration. So you have Britain's partition where they give this much land, uh, all of the land west of the Jordan to uh, Israel. And then the UN came along, and if you can look at this map, it's a little fuzzy here, but there's a striped area right up here to the northern part, in the northern part. That Vertically striped area is the area that was Israel's when they declared independence in 1948. Everything else was was stripped away from them, and that alone was given them, just barely a toehold in the land. In 1948, point number six, May of 1948, Israel declared independence, and five Arab nations invaded. They rejected the U.N. division. They did not accept it, which would have given a Palestinian homeland, by the way. Uh, Arabs instead wanted all the land. They don't want any Jews in there at all. Land for peace didn't work then. It doesn't work now. And uh, the Arab nations uh, never recognized in 1948 a Palestinian subgroup. Point number seven, the invading Arabs told the resident Arabs in Israel to flee said, get out so you don't get hurt when we invade. As a result, 65% of the Arabs left, hoping to reap the spoils of war when the Arabs ran the Jews into the ocean. Unfortunately for for those refugees, the Arabs lost, and they lost their homes. That was the beginning of the current uh, problem. At that time, the Arab nations uh, ejected 650,000 Jews who were living in Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iran, Iraq. They ejected them and stole all their property, everything. They could only leave with the clothes on their back. They confiscated all of their property, uh, pilfered their bank accounts, and uh, and sent them home, sent them to Israel. Yet the 630,000 Arabs that willingly left Israel following the Arab instructions to flee were not accepted into the Arab countries. The Arabs that did remain became full citizens of Israel with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of press. They, like like the Israelis they live with, have 95% literacy, unlike any Arab country. There are over 1,000 educational institutions in Israel that are Arab and Muslim-oriented. Their women have full and equal rights under the law. They have better health care, education, a higher standard of living than any Arab in any Arab country. 70% of them 
in a recent poll, would rather live in Israel than any other country in the Middle East, but they still want to side with the Palestinian cause. Point number eight, Jordan captured and held the West Bank after 1948. Jordan and Jerusalem had been designated to be under Jordanian rule in UN Resolution number 81. So that meant that that West Bank area is Jordan's in 1967 when Jordan joined the other Arab nations and invaded Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War. They lost. They lost the land, and it was taken over militarily by the Jews. No other nation in modern history that's gained land in a war has been forced to give it up. So why should the Jews give up the, the West Bank? They didn't steal it from the Palestinians. They took it from the Jordanians. Uh, point number 10, by the 1970s, the Arabs were into the big lie technique of Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's propaganda chief, and they claimed that there should be a homeland for the Palestinians. Now they're going to adopt that name for the Arabs. Point 11, just a side note, Palestine is a word which originally was coined by the Greeks from their word for wrestler. Remember, Israel is a name for uh, Jacob who wrestled with God. The Greek word palaio sounded like Philistine, so the pun appealed to the Greeks. That's the origin of the word Palestine. Conclusion, the Palestinian problem is a problem generated by the Arabs, not the Israelis. It's a, generated by the Arabs, not the Israelis. The Arabs, not the Israelis, told the Arab residents to flee. The Arabs, not the Israelis, violated the UN Charter and invaded Israel in 1948, 1967, and 1973. The Arabs, not the Israelis, have more than enough land to resettle the Arab refugees. The Arabs, not the Israelis, refused to let the Arab refugees have a place to live. And the Arabs, not the Israelis, are the cause of the problem. That is why the return to the land today is a fulfillment of prophecy, and we continue to see some of these things take place. Now, the final verse, verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the Antichrist. In the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That will be the abomination of desolation. It's called here, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. He will do what Antiochus Epiphanes did in the ancient world, and that is set up some kind of idol, some kind of statue in the Holy of Holies of the Tribulation Temple. It is a desecration of the temple and is a warning. Notice the end of the verse, one that until he makes desolate until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the complete destruction is poured out on the Antichrist. He's the one who makes desolate. Now, Jesus referred to this in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, when you see, warning the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in the house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. See, Jesus' warning is such that, that what happens in the middle of the tribulation is that Jews who are positive are going to be reading Matthew. They're going to read Matthew 24, and they're going to respond. Jews who are not positive are going to ignore Matthew 24. Jews that are positive are going to flee to the mountains. They eventually will make their way down in, across the Jordan, down into uh, ancient Moab, the area south of Petra called Basra, not Basra, Connecticut, but Basra in the Middle East. It is an area that is ringed by mountains. It can probably hold uh, a couple of million people. Those Jews who flee there flee because they're positive to the message of Matthew 24. Some may be saved, but not all. But when they end up in Basra, they will all call on the name of the Lord, and all Israel will be saved. That's the foundation of that verse. That's why all Israel saved it. All the other Jews outside of Basra are going to be killed in the tribulation. 
those Jews are going to be delivered. That's why you can say that all the Jews that survived the tribulation are going to be saved, not because God forces it, but because the only place where they can be delivered is in Basra, and the only reason they're there is because they've heeded the warning of Matthew 24 and they showing that they're positive. Well, that wraps up our study of Daniel 9 and Daniel 70th week. Next time we'll come back and start into Daniel chapter 10 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to uh, gain this great understanding of how you have worked in history, both in the ancient world and in modern times, how you have worked to bring back Jews, though unregenerate, to the land in order to begin to set the stage for those future events in the tribulation. We don't know when that will occur. We have no idea when our Lord will return. It may be today. It may not be for another 50 or 100 years. But we know we must be ready. The purpose of a study like this is to challenge us to be ready for the return of Christ, as we have studied in 1 John 2.28, that we may not be ashamed at his coming. We pray that you challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.